it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, September 28, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I host this program every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I invite you to listen live every day between those hours. If you can't, we have a podcast. It's always free when the show is over. It's on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. Here's the lineup today. We'll get to our first guest in a moment. Sandra Smith, our colleague, will be here later in the hour talking about some more troublesome signs with the U.S. economy, including and particularly on interest rates. What does that mean? It's getting scarier in some big ways out there economically. Sandra Smith here to analyze and break it down. In the next hour, Joe Concha will be our guest. He's out with a new book today. I also want to ask him about some of the news, some of the media coverage, for example, of this hurricane that we're going to talk about. We'll get to Joe coming up in our middle hour. And Josh Krasauer, who is a reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst, he and I are going to talk through what the election cycle is looking like less than six weeks until Election Day. Some new polling out just today. Some, I'd say, better news now for Republicans starting to be reflected in the national polling. We'll get Josh's take on that and much more ahead on today's show over these next three hours. But we begin with a Fox News alert. Hurricane Ian is bearing down on Florida with landfall now imminent. Winds at 155 miles an hour. It's a Category 4 hurricane. And just some of the images and pictures coming out of southwest Florida are terrifying. This is a very dangerous storm. What cameras are capturing is just, I think, a preview of what's to come. And it's already disturbing enough. Joining us now to break this down and tell us what we need to know is Brian Donegan, who's a senior digital meteorologist at Fox Weather. And, Brian, it's good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Guy. Thanks for having me on today. All right. Give us the basics. I know that they're calling landfall imminent. What does that mean exactly, and what are the communities that are most at risk right now? So right now, um, the hurricane's only about 20 miles offshore of Fort Myers and Punta Gorda, so... I mean, when you say landfall, it's probably only minutes away. I would say within the next 15, 20 minutes, we'll we'll have an official landfall announcement from the National Hurricane Center, and it's likely going to come ashore as a as a Category Four hurricane with 155 mile per hour wind. So it's truly a worst case scenario for Southwest Florida today. There was some speculation I saw earlier in the day that maybe this could even become a Category Five hurricane. They were saying that it was just maybe like one mile an hour shy of that designation. Is there a chance that this ramps up into a Cat 5 storm, or is 4 the likeliest scenario? 
It seems most likely right now they come to shore as a Category 4. Category 5 technically starts at 157 miles per hour. We're at 155, so we're only two miles per hour away. But the hurricane hunters have been flying through it all afternoon, and they have not yet found evidence to bump it up uh, to a Category 5. So we're likely looking at the Category 4 landfall, but regardless, the impacts are going to be exactly the same, whether it's a Category 4 or a Category 5 when it makes landfall. It's going to be catastrophic regardless. Yeah, and I'm looking at you know some of these cities that could be affected. Port Charlotte right there, Cape Corral, a little bit south is Naples, north is Tampa. But the eye of this storm, as it gets closer and closer, uh, closer to the shoreline, there's still a lot of that sort of activity, that deep red color, deep into the state of Florida, almost the entire southern tip of the state of Florida, feeling some effects from this right now. What is sort of the, the rule of thumb about the types of communities, like how close to the water and to the storm do you have to be to really be in grave danger of of harm or even potential death versus other people who still have to take significant precautions but may may not have as imminent and as immediate a threat? Right. So along the immediate coastline where this is coming ashore, it'll it'll probably make one of the somewhere between uh, I would say between Sarasota and Fort Myers. Um, so in those areas in, in southwest Florida, right along the immediate coast, that's where the most uh, destructive winds are going to be. You'll have wind gusts easily over 115 miles per hour. And we've already seen gusts as high as 126 miles per hour, not far from Naples. Um, and then the, the, the highest storm surge will also be in that general area where it makes landfall as well. So the National Hurricane Center right now is calling for a catastrophic storm surge of 12 to 18 feet along parts of the uh, southwest Florida coast, and that includes Charlotte Harbor and the cities of Port Charlotte and Fort Myers. And at at that level, the storm surge in Fort Myers will be up to first-story roofs. So it's going to be very catastrophic along the immediate coastline, but the impacts are going to be very wide-reaching. Pretty much anywhere in the Florida Peninsula is going to see some type of impact from this uh, it, basically anywhere from central Florida up through northeast Florida could see one to two feet of rain in the next couple of days. This is going to crawl across Florida tonight and through tomorrow. So heavy rain is going to continue to fall. The winds are going to be gusty across the entire state. Um, but the worst of the impacts will certainly be along the immediate coastline. But basically the entire peninsula of Florida will see some effect of this storm over the next couple of days as it crawls across the state. What's the trajectory for the storm once it makes landfall very soon and starts, as you say, to crawl northward up the state? Where does it go from there? And when is the hope that it could start to really lose momentum and peter out and the threat would then shift to an aftermath triage as opposed to the the clear and present danger at the moment? Essentially, once it makes landfall, it'll slowly crawl towards the northeast across the Florida Peninsula. Uh, So it'll move into central Florida tonight and then into northeastern Florida by tomorrow. And then from there, it should move off the coast of Florida uh, by tomorrow evening or tomorrow night. Um, Then it'll probably make a second landfall as a tropical storm somewhere in Georgia or South Carolina on Friday. And the storm will certainly weaken as, as it moves across the state. Uh, but uh, it, it's probably still going to be near hurricane strength, even as it moves offshore of uh, northeastern Florida tomorrow night. Mm. Um, and probably a, a tropical storm where it makes a second landfall in Georgia or South Carolina on Friday. I saw on the news channel that they've been tracking already known 
numbers of Floridians experiencing power outages. That is well over half a million right now at this hour. I would imagine it's going to get worse. And I think one of the concerns is not only people who might be affected by the storm surge, the flooding, debris, anything like that. It's not really clear how long large swaths of the population of that state will be without power, potentially for days or longer. And that is its own form of danger and and hardship for people. Talk about that component here as well. I, I know everyone who should be gone hopefully is gone. Some people decide to hunker down, which is always a huge risk. But I would imagine that a lot of Floridians are going to need a lot of help for the foreseeable future. Well, for for sure. Um, there's already, at last check, I, I saw over 600,000 without power. And yeah, it's like almost, almost 800,000 now. They just updated it. Nearly 800,000 people without power. Right. So I would expect that number to probably cross over a million just in the next couple of hours as the storm moves farther inland. Um, these people will probably be without power for weeks or more as the, the hurricane's uh, destructive wind will probably cause significant damage to the power infrastructure across southwest Florida, maybe even in the central Florida as as well. So I would imagine some people are without power for one week, maybe even two weeks. It, it depends how, how long it actually takes them to rebuild all, all the down power lines that, that, that we're going to see in the next day or so. Last question, Brian. I know a lot of the discussion of hurricanes and storms like this comes in advance of the arrival of the storm and people like you try to figure out where it's headed how powerful it will be and then people on the ground officials make policy decisions and recommendations as a result of that and then at some point you've really crossed a rubicon where it's too late all the preparation discussion ends and now the storm is here obviously we're at that point now What's the best course of action? What's the best advice now that it's not really a preparation game anymore? It's a a coping and survival situation right now. Well, the the best advice now, if you're in the path of this hurricane, you want to get into an interior room in your house and stay away from all all windows. Maybe protect yourself with a mattress if you are in the core of a destructive wind as, as this comes ashore. Because there's 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 no running it out as at this point, the storm is here, and if 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 you didn't leave, you're you're basically stuck there, and you're kind of on on your own because it might be a while for anyone to even get to you. If we see uh, the widespread flooding that that, that we're expecting uh, to see, it's going to be difficult for first responders to even get into some of these towns if 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 the water continues to rise. And if we see storm surge values of of a foot or more in in, in some places, the water is not going to recede very quickly. We're going right. to see very widespread flooding for multiple days. Uh, yeah, and so if help will not be immediately forthcoming. Help will not be necessarily on the way because of what you just described. Our guest, Brian Donegan, Fox Weather Senior Digital Meteorologist, joining us here on the Guy Benson Show as Hurricane Ian making landfall in southwest Florida, a Category 4 hurricane. And again, we are thinking and praying for the people of Florida. We're thinking about them. And there's going to be a lot of help, I would imagine, needed for a while here. So I think Americans are very generous. We will tackle that when it comes to it. But right now, there's this immediate threat right in front of us, and we're following it very closely. We will continue to keep an eye on it here today. And I'm sure we will have another weather expert and meteorologist here on the show tomorrow to see where things stand this time, 24 hours from now. 
Brian, thank you very much for your insight and this information today as we start the show. Thank you very much, Guy. I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to address some of the politicizing of this that's already happened like preemptively in our politicized age. Of course, we're seeing that, unfortunately. I want to talk about it a little bit. There's some audio I want to play for you. We've got a lot ahead, including Sandra Smith, Joe Concha, Josh Krasauer, and much more. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So in our opening segment, we had Brian Donegan on, meteorologist, talking about Hurricane Ian, and he said landfall was going to happen any minute. And by the end of our segment, as I mentioned, landfall has happened. So I'll just alert that in with a Fox News alert in case you had missed that. Ian has now hit Florida, southwest Florida, this Cat 4 hurricane. And for all the reasons that we just discussed in that segment, uh, it is scary. It is extremely dangerous. The images coming out of Florida are harrowing, and we will continue to follow the story. There's also a political element of this, which is, I think, inevitable in our current political moment, especially given who the governor of Florida is, Ron DeSantis. And in my estimation, and you might say, oh, well, Guy likes DeSantis. He talks about him. Well, I think that I can still be objective in a moment where things shouldn't be political, and it's just basic government competence that's needed. In my estimation, he is doing a very good job. Now, a lot of the tests will come in the next few days and, in fact, the coming weeks. But in the preparation stage for Ian, DeSantis has been taking this deadly seriously as he should. He has been briefing consistently. It seems like he's not sleeping. He's out there giving media interviews, focused completely on this disaster that was approaching and has now hit his state. And... Yesterday at a press conference, one of the reporters sort of tried to pit the Biden administration against the state of Florida, and DeSantis immediately saw what was happening and shut it down completely, not in sort of a bombastic political way, which he does sometimes, obviously, but I think he handled this quite adeptly, given the context and the circumstances. Cut eight. FEMA Administrator Chris Wallace said today that she acknowledged concerns that uh, Florida, has, as was said, lacks response to the storm so far. And that whoa, 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 whoa. Give there. me a break. That is nonsense. Stop politicizing, okay? Stop it. We declared a state of emergency when this thing wasn't even formed. We've had people in here. You've had counties doing. Uh, they've done a lot of hard work. And, and honestly, you're trying to attack me, I get. But, like, you're attacking these other people who've worked very hard. And so, so that's just totally false. Um, I don't think we've ever, certainly since I've been governor, declared a state of emergency this early. Uh, we made sure that we were very inclusive with it. We said that there was a lot of uncertainty. And, and we've worked to make sure um, the preparations that have been done and all the, the stuff, you talk to the people at the counties when they've needed something stuff gets there very quickly because of what kevin and his team have done yep so he's not making this about him he said i realize you're trying to make this about me i get you're trying to attack me but this is about the hard work being done at the state and county level in preparation which has been extensive you'd have to be 
asleep at the switch not to see how seriously Florida, not just DeSantis, but the whole state, the, the official apparatus in that state, Republican, Democrat, everyone, understands what a threat this storm could have been and now is turning into, and they have acted appropriately and accordingly. And to play this kind of game, to try to score points inaccurately against DeSantis, as he says, takes away from the efforts of other people. And he credited them, which I think was good leadership. Now, there's this other sidebar, which is for a while, Biden wasn't calling DeSantis. The president was not calling the governor of this state. Biden was reportedly talking to mayors, Democratic mayors and other officials, but not the governor. And that became a little bit of a news story. And DeSantis was asked about this, also took the high road in cut nine. I have not personally spoken with the president, but the FEMA has approved our pre-landfall request. Uh, we've had Gracia here uh, really from since the weekend. Uh, Gracia's been here. She's always around here. And so, so we feel like we have a good relationship uh, with FEMA. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to, to brief the president if he's interested um, in hearing what we're doing in Florida. You know, my view on all this is like you, know, you got people's lives at stake. you got their property at stake. Uh, and we don't have time for pettiness. we got to work together to make sure we're doing the best job for them. So, so my, my, phone, my phone line is open, and we're happy. But we, are, we do appreciate the quick approval of the pre-landfall declaration. Yeah, so the president hasn't called him. He decided not to take shots at Biden for that. He said, my phone line's open, happy to brief, but people's lives are at stake. We don't have time for pettiness. By the way, guess what? Biden finally called him, reportedly. Took him a while, maybe got shamed into it. And then on Hannity last night, DeSantis giving an update on the situation in Florida, and he was very magnanimous and gracious and really sticking to this message appropriately of working together in the face of this, this natural disaster cut 10. When people's lives and their property are at risk like this, you know, we all need to work together regardless of party lines. Uh, the Biden administration has approved our request for a pre-landfall declaration and did that very quickly. So, so we're thankful for that. You know, obviously, as this, the impacts are known, uh, you know, there's going to be more requests, particularly uh, for individual assistance for Floridians that may have been displaced. You know, and it's my sense that the administration, you know, wants to help. I think they realize that this is a really significant storm. Uh, and there's a lot of people that you know, we're working with the locals. We work very well with them, of course, at the state level. Uh, but we really need everyone working together to make sure people uh, have their needs tended to. I think that's exactly right. Very well handled. This is chapter one of this big challenge for Florida. But the governor of Florida so far has passed with flying colors. And now the real hard work begins as we track Hurricane Ian, a four category four hurricane making landfall just now out of the gates and ready to go hey it's hutton with Roe. hot mike is here on the outkick network we've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion and it's available wherever you find your audio daily analysis and news he is hot i am mike actually my <laughs> name is chad his name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are just shuffling through this program. It's already flying by. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website. Podcast is free every day and we are joined now once again by our friend and colleague sandra smith co-anchor of america reports with john roberts 
1 to 3 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox News Channel. She's also spent a lot of her career covering the markets and the economy. Sandra, great to have you back. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. I want to ask you about something that I saw tweeted by both our colleague Dagan McDowell and also Larry Summers noticing the same trends. Dagan tweeting earlier this morning, the yield on the 10-year Treasury hits 4% for the first time in more than a decade, climbing at the fastest pace in 40 years. Mortgage rates headed to 7% plus. What is your analysis of the significance of these developments happening? Well, there's the expectation for fewer home sales, eventually prices to come down. I mean, you're talking about median home prices hitting $384,000 in this country. I mean, they were at elevated levels as we saw a booming uh, stock market and you saw those record low interest rates, easy money environment that existed for quite some time. And you had a serious elevation in the price of of home sales in this country, that can quickly come to an end. When you've got now the 30-year mortgage hitting uh, mortgage rate hitting 6.5%, depends on where you look, but it's right around there. And, I mean, it has gone up significantly in a short period of time. That causes a major disruption in the U.S. housing market and makes people nervous. And I think you're seeing that play out in the overall stock market, the commodity market, the bond market. There's a lot of nervous investors out there. And if you were in that group that bought a home in the last couple of years with interest rates low where they were, that easy money environment, and you now own that home, you're a little worried. You're, you're worried about the value of your home. Uh, if you're in an adjustable rate mortgage, you're worried about your mortgage pay, payments ballooning. Uh, those are all real concerns of, of real people, and I think that's why you're seeing such a nervous marketplace right now. And yet, today the Dow is way up. Right now it's up over 600 points at the moment. Uh, and I wonder what you think is driving that. It's been really rough sledding on Wall Street for more than a week, some big drops. Today looks like a bright spot, at least so far. Why? Well, you know, I called a few of my friends on Wall Street just to figure out what that was all about. I mean, you, sometimes you just get relief from heavy selling. That can certainly be the case. Uh, but you've also got those technical uh, Wall Street traders that watch the charts and they say technically this looks like some of them are saying technically this can look like an oversold market therefore a buying opportunity so you get some of those buyers that step in at these lower stock prices and start buying uh so there's a there's a few different scenarios that could be playing out but you're still looking at what has been a big drop in the stock market um into bear market territory which means it's off 20 percent from recent highs yep and it's still below thirty thousand in this bear market territory. What we saw yesterday and the day before from the White House was you know, some tweets and some chest thumping about a slightly improved consumer confidence number, that it ticked up just a little bit. And I saw some of the White House's critics saying, I mean, that is really small potatoes to be hanging your hat on. I think I just mixed a metaphor there, but that, that's not necessarily something to be crowing all that much about, especially when there seem to be some pretty bright flashing signs about danger and worry in broad sectors of the economy. I know we had a big debate, Sandra, and you were here on the show when we were talking about this, about whether back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth, you know, contraction, really was a recession or was it just technically a recession? Was that definition uh, appropriate to be applied here? 
it sounds like even some of the doubters there are starting to get worried about that R word in a more serious way moving forward. What's your overall sense of that question and that scenario? Well, for uh, for most of us who have watched markets for quite some time and were studies of, of economic history, we know that most economists define recession by two straight quarters of, of, of contraction in the economy or, or negative GDP growth. And that is what we have experienced. So there are many who are already in the camp that we are living and working in a recession right now. Uh, you know, if people want to open that up to other economic indicators, they certainly can. Many are attributing the rise to a five-month high of consumer confidence to the recent drop in gas prices. Because, guy, end of day, you know, it's about your grocery bill. It's about your gas prices. Um, it's about those pocketbook issues for the American voters as we work our way to midterm elections. And inflation has been it's been rough for the average American family that's shelling out almost 500 extra dollars a month right now for inflation. It hurts. And if you get a little bit of relief, which we have, we've had um, we've had uh, straight weeks of uh, drops in the average price of gasoline um, that that could change. I mean, we've got we've got um, what could be an interruption in gasoline and oil supply because of this hurricane, although it's not directly in the path of the major refineries on the Gulf Coast. But still, there could be some localized um, disruption there. It won't affect the global market. But gas prices are still high. They are still high. Food prices are still high. Inflation is still real. That has not changed. Uh, what has changed is we've had to raise interest rates to tame inflation. And that is it takes us back to our original point. That the housing market could seriously be disrupted here as the 30-year mortgage rates now topping 6%, to your point, on the way to 7%. There are some really worrying indicators out there where economists are saying, let's stop, take note. And then you have what's happening over in England right now where they're doing the opposite um, of, of tightening. And they're having to now ease to bring its currency off rock bottom. Uh, after some missteps, if you will, over there. So it's all going to come down to the Federal Reserve and how they handle this crisis. We're still living in inflation, and they are still tasked with an enormous responsibility to bring those prices down without driving us into a major prolonged recession or period of stagflation. Yeah, and it's a very hard balance to strike. And, you know, right now it's just a lot of pain for a lot of people. The numbers – that we got a few weeks ago on inflation were terrible for August. I think everyone's sort of on pins and needles about what they're going to look like in September. And Sandra, I'm glad that you brought up the gas prices issue because, yes, your your underlying point is correct. Gas prices are still way elevated compared to what they were even a little while ago. When Biden took office, they were much lower. But they were even worse a few months back, and then things came down a bit, which was a, a bit of an alleviation However, it's now the eighth consecutive day of gas prices, the average gas price going up now in the U.S. And that is obviously a trend in the wrong direction, more than a week of increasing prices again, probably for various reasons. And I've been a little bit kind of puzzled here, Sandra, because the president of the United States has, first of all, misstated now multiple times. He's saying that the average price of gasoline is below two dollars in a bunch of states, he said more than 40 states plus the District of Columbia, uh, the average price is below $3 a gallon. That was not true of any state, let alone 41 is what he said. Then he changed it a little bit and said some states have the cost below $3 a gallon. That is still untrue. I, I just don't see what the 
what the thought process or the benefit is there to tell a falsehood like that that's so easily verifiable or falsifiable in this case. He's also, I've noticed, Sandra, going back to some of the talking points that we got over the summer when gas prices were bad. One of them was Putin, right, the price hike. The other one was, you know, all those evil oil and gas companies uh, raising prices. They're too greedy. Those, I think, very weak arguments went away for a while because the trend was in the right direction uh, from from consumer standpoint and from the political standpoint of the White House. Now that it looks like maybe things are getting hairy again, here's what the president just said in cut 11. Listen. So forgive me, I want to add one more warning. That's warning to the oil and gas industry executives. Do not. Let me repeat, do not, do not use this as an excuse to raise gasoline prices or gouge the American people. The price of oil has stayed relatively low. It kept going down. The price of gas should be going down as well. This small temporary storm impact on oil production provides no excuse, no excuse for price increases at the pump, none. All right, so the greedy oil companies and their executives are back in the presidential, you know, word bag, pulling out a scapegoat here. I just wonder when you hear that, what you make of a warning like that or a comment like that from a president. My blood boils. Um, You know, I was born and raised in the commodities industry Um, after, you know, being – on the trading floors myself, I transitioned to reporting on commodities, including oil and gas, to now covering them for a general news audience. And I will tell you this, that the price of oil and gas are, is determined by economic market factors, nothing else. Economics 101, supply and demand. And for anyone who questions that, like the president just did, you can turn to multiple repeated in-depth investigations by the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, that have shown that changes in gasoline prices are based on market factors, not illegal behavior that the president has often claimed. Similarly, you can look at the state level where state investigators have repeatedly, when, when, when pressed to find some sort of evidence of it, have repeatedly found that price increases are the result of market forces. They're out there. You can research them yourself. It's public information. They have been deployed many times to try to find that price gouging occurs, not just by the big oil companies, because you have to imagine that the president is accusing small mom-and-pop gasoline operations that operate your local gas station in many cases because a majority of them are independently owned. He's accusing them of price gouging. And not only that, it would be collusion. Because, guys, think about your local, um, you know, stop off of a highway where you've got four or five gas stations at one corner. So you would have to, you would have to, if you're assuming that they're price gouging and raising their prices illegally, that they were all in cahoots. Right. They're on a listserv. They're on a listserv (laughs) together. All right. It's time to raise them, folks. Right, because they're in competition with each other. They're trying to sell a hot dog over here just to come have you buy their gas over here. So my point is, this is the president. He's this is anything that he is accusing these oil companies of has been seriously investigated and has never found wrongdoing of price gouging. You know, it's, it's pure politics to do that. It's dangerous. It's pure politics. And this is a supply and demand situation. And if there is a rise in gas or oil prices due to this storm right now, it is because there is a hit to some refining capacity. That could happen. Right now, the path of the storm does not suggest that to be the case, um, that it will be widespread. 
but certainly could take some refining capacity offline, and there could be a temporary rise in prices down there. But let's just put it this way. Um, gas prices have not come down significantly to the point where California is still seeing over $6. And some of the Midwest states, like Wisconsin and Michigan, they're be, they're Consumers there are being warned that they could be paying over $4 as an average soon. Uh, so this is happening prior to the storm even hitting. Um, they have not gotten inflation under control. Uh, this is an administration that has been anti-fossil fueled, and it's been a really difficult environment for the American consumer because they're paying the price for it. I know you don't have a crystal ball, Sandra, but bottom line this for me because you've got some of this dissonance out there where you know, the stock market's in bear market territory, then it bounces up by 700 points, and then, you know, what's happening here? And the White House is saying, look at the consumer confidence number that we've talked about. Other people saying these other warning signs are all over the place. Based on your experience, based on the history of this stuff, where do you think we are headed? Is the pain going to get worse before it gets better? It depends on if they rip the Band-Aid off, which our friends Larry Kudlow uh, it seems also Art Laffer, Larry Summers, and others seem to think this Federal Reserve to just inflict a lot of pain right now, meaning hike those interest rates more aggressively to tame the prices. And remember, the idea behind that is raise interest rates so far, so fast, that it's it serious economic pain on people so that demand is weakened and therefore right. price comes down. They're saying rip the Band-Aid off, bring those prices down. I don't know that this Federal Reserve is willing to do that. Um, but they, have, they still have a shot. We'll see. The Paul Volcker model works. He did it. It brought prices down. It's painful short term, but eventually longer term, it brings the prices down. Um, I think it's a wait and see guy. I'm not going to put a forecast out there, um, but it, either way, it, there's going to be there's going to be an economic hit. There's going to be some pain, and it didn't have to happen. This was inflation that was ignored too long, spiraled out of control, and now the Federal Reserve has a huge job before it. So well, well, it was it was denied. It was made worse. It was denied again. Then it was called temporary and transitory. They've, they've really been dragging their feet and doing counterproductive things every step of the way. And the idea that they're going to course correct and see the light and do the right thing, uh, I think that they're too consumed with politics, which could actually be their downfall anyway. Uh, but I tend to agree with your analysis there. Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America, uh, America Reports, every day alongside John Roberts. That's 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Fox News Channel. Sandra, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You bet. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. We are tracking Hurricane Ian, Category 4 storm that has made landfall while we were on the air in southwest Florida. It's getting pummeled, and it's a story that we are covering. We'll have updates as needed and also coverage tomorrow as well. We have one of the top meteorologists at Fox lined up here on the program tomorrow. In the meantime, I saw this story. It's just a local news story, not getting almost any attention Nationally, I wonder why, out of Michigan, pro-life volunteer, this is from a CBS affiliate, pro-life volunteer recovering after being shot while passing out pamphlets in Michigan. Apparently there was a pro-life woman who's a volunteer for a right-to-life organization who on Tuesday was going house-to-house with pamphlets 
I guess there's a, an abortion referendum, and she was passing out pamphlets urging people to vote no on this referendum. 83-year-old woman, who I guess has spent a life, a lifetime, being pro-life, volunteering her efforts in her 80s to protect the unborn. You can agree with this woman. You can disagree with this woman. She's just out there doing grassroots activism peacefully. She's 83. And apparently one of the houses that she went to, people got agitated because they disagreed with her. She, the report goes, turned around to walk back to her car. Someone came out of the house and shot her in the back. Fortunately, it only nicked her. It was sort of up by her shoulder. She has survived. She is recovering and reportedly in good spirits. And again, the details here are still emerging. Uh, The woman in particular is asking to remain anonymous for the moment. So, you know, there's a few disclaimers here. But you think about the strange and disturbing story in North Dakota where an 18-year-old conservative was killed. A guy mowed him down with his car because at least he told police this kid was an extremist Republican, so he chased him down and killed him. Now you've got a pro-life canvasser shot in the back, an 83-year-old woman. Another pro-life pregnancy center was firebombed and vandalized this week while Democrats are actively persecuting those organizations with the power of the government now urged on by the vice president. Kamala Harris is telling Democratic attorneys general to do that. While these groups are getting firebombed and harassed and attacked, Speaker of the House won't won't decry it, won't condemn it. Maybe we do have a political violence problem in this country, just not the way the media thinks. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern daily. This is our middle hour of three. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com podcast free of charge on demand every day as we always like to remind you follow us on social media at guy benson show twitter and instagram joe concha coming up later in the hour josh Krasauer here in the next hour first a fox news alert we will continue to watch hurricane ian a category four hurricane that made landfall in the last hour and By all accounts, it is an absolutely devastating storm. So stay safe down there in Florida. We're thinking of you. We will have updates as warranted, including tomorrow we have one of our top meteorologists here on the show. I will also bring you this news with the Dow closing up today, 548 points. That's actually off-session highs, but still in the green by a substantial margin. The Dow ending the day at 29,683. Well, I want to talk about crime. It is a very big issue in this campaign season. Probably ask Josh Crossauer a little bit about it next hour as well, because we have seen some candor out of people like Jen Psaki. We played that soundbite on this program where she's saying, yeah, actually crime is a big vulnerability for Democrats. 
in 2022. And I know the White House is sort of trying to deny that. It's hard to deny a very flagrantly obvious point being made by your previous spokesperson. It's a little bit of a a tricky thing to do there. But you have some of these Democratic politicians absolutely whistling past the graveyard. There are radically almost pro-criminal nominees from the Democrats for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman. And there's just a whole litany of things that he said through the years that his campaign now just trying to deny things that he said out loud on tape. I keep promising and we will walk through some of those sound bites in more thorough detail. But he's right up there on that list. Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin in that race for Senate. Barnes about as weak on crime as you can get. And they decided that they were going to nominate him, even given all the baggage that he's accumulated, especially in recent years. He's running against Ron Johnson there. We've seen a pro-criminal DA recalled by the people, people of San Francisco, others under real scrutiny. New York City is among the large American cities dealing with this problem. There was a video that you may have seen, and I'm not talking about the Philadelphia convenience store getting absolutely ransacked. I saw a soundbite of a Philadelphia resident today Man on the street, local news saying Philly is wild. It's like the Wild West in that city with just, you know, rampant crime, very frequently not punished. They've got another one of these sort of totally woke Soros-backed DAs, Krasner, who doesn't really believe in enforcing the law. And the results have been an absolute catastrophe for public safety. And in New York City, the video that I was referring to was just awful, really tough to watch. It was in the New York City subway. There was a woman who is a security guard at JFK Airport, which is in New York City. She was on her way to work, and she was savagely beaten by a man in the subway. And it went on, punching and kicking, hard to watch. The victim, Elizabeth Gomes appeared on several local outlets to talk about it, and she was badly battered. And her eye, I mean, it is is very disturbing. Just watching sort of the somewhat grainy security footage is extremely upsetting. She's now speaking out. Here is Ms. Gomes in Cut 23. Basically, it's like any other crazy guy out there. He's just talking about a whole bunch of nonsense. I'm just trying to ignore him. Just, you know, just trying to make it to work peacefully. And I mean, I don't know where just, it just viciously attacked me out of nowhere. Like, I don't even want to take the train. You know, I love my job so much. And a part of me, like, it doesn't even want to go back. Because I'm scared. I wouldn't ever expect either. this to happen. Like, my life has changed. Everything. Change. Breaking down in tears. Crazy guy muttering nonsense. She's trying to ignore him. He won't ignore her. She's just trying to get to work. And then she's viciously attacked. This is the only way she can get to work, but she's scared to do it. And she's crying. Because she was the victim of a very, very violent assault. On ABC7 New York, she went on to challenge city officials. Cut 24. 
every day is an incident in the subway. What happened to all these police officers? They said they will have there to protect us, to be there. There's like nobody to be found. I, I don't understand. This is a victim asking for answers in New York City. Problem is, you've got the mayor there who's not as bad as his predecessor, but still seems to be very focused on uh, some national profile that he's building. There's rumors he wants to run for president. He's in the war of words with, you know, DeSantis and Abbott over his sanctuary city that he doesn't really feel should be all that much of a sanctuary because he's mad at these Republican governors, just like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. They love sparring with Republicans while their cities are falling apart. Like, maybe focus on your problems at home. And, you know, I know Lori Lightfoot said it's racist to even talk about it and, and ignorant to mention those problems. And Eric Adams, you know, he's out there partying it up. He's at all these events. He seems to be having a good time. And he talks a pretty good game on crime. He's a former cop. But what's actually happening there? Of course, you've got a bail reform law in that state, which is terrible. And Adams does speak out against it. Kathy Hochul, who's the governor of New York, a Democrat, just seeming to cruise to reelection right now. She's up, I saw, 15, 17 points in New York State. She absolutely refuses to touch the bail reform law. That is a big source of a lot of this problem. Then you've got Bragg, the DA in New York City, who's a Soros-based, Soros-backed, pro-crime prosecutor, one of these guys like that we've seen across the country. He's also part of the problem, this revolving door that drives the cops crazy. They feel like they're doing their job in vain. Whenever anything might go slightly sideways, these Democratic officials don't have their back. They come out and they attack the police and they criticize the police and they sort of side with the rioters to hope that the rioters don't riot too much. What a demoralizing cycle. But I mentioned that bail reform law that, again, Kathy Hochul is just in favor of, the governor of New York. She kind of looks at this problem from a distance and she goes, oh, gosh, I guess crime in our biggest city is spinning out of control. Criminals out there on the loose because of this terrible policy. But, hey, I'm just going to talk about abortion nonstop. You come to New York, hey, you can get an abortion. You might get stabbed on your way, but at least you can end your pregnancy. That's basically her re-election campaign. It might be good enough in a place that blue. New York Post has a story. This is an editorial board editorial. Headline, let's talk. This is from earlier in the week, from yesterday. Let's talk about the New York City poster boy for bail reform's failure. The editors write, as a teen, Pedro Hernandez became a progressive cause celeb as a poster boy for bail reform. But in the years since... He's proven himself the poster boy for reform's failure. Pre-reform, he spent a year in jail after refusing to take a plea deal in a 2015 botched bodega robbery. On Tuesday at 22, so this is years later, this, this guy was apparently like, hey, this is why we need bail reform. He was held for way too long. He was part of this alleged robbery of a bodega, and I guess the case sort of fell apart. One of the witnesses stopped cooperating when... I guess the alleged criminals were back on the street. And a bunch of 
left-wing groups and people and organizations were saying, Pedro Hernandez is a victim. This is why we need to reform the system. They made these reforms in a very foolish way. And then guess what happened? This Tuesday, at the age of 22, Mr. Hernandez was arraigned for attempted murder in an incident outside St. Patrick's Cathedral last month. Cops nabbed him in that case on Monday afternoon after he backed out on plans to surrender willingly. And then he was arraigned the next day. This past Tuesday, attempted murder is the charge on this supposed victim of the system. You all know if you listen to the show, I'm in favor of certain elements of criminal justice reform. I think often it involves paying a debt, rehabilitation, giving someone a second chance, an an opportunity for redemption, not just cutting dangerous people loose as a matter of course because it's wrong to have people behind bars when they're dangerous. And yet a lot of the compassionate, quote-unquote, progressive, quote-unquote, people out there, they're in favor of this stuff that's putting law-abiding people like the woman we just heard from viciously beaten in the subway, putting them at risk. And one of the people that was like, you know, one of the champions, one of the, one of the causes that was championed by this whole brigade is now charged with attempted murder in New York City. Oh, and by the way, Eric Adams decided with a chuckle that he was going to give some swagger about New York City and in the process dump on another place in this country, cut 14. We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, it means something. You know, when we go there, it's not, a, Kansas doesn't have a brand. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you know, when you go there, okay, you're from Kansas. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> but New York has a brand. Yeah. A good laugh at the expense of Kansas. New York has a brand. How's the city's brand doing right now, Mr. Mayor? It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We sometimes play gaffes and foibles from President Biden here and poke some fun at him. This one is particularly bad. This one is worse than stand-up Chuck, if you remember that one. The guy in the wheelchair, Biden was yelling at him to stand up and realized he couldn't. Oh, God love you. This one takes that awkwardness to another level. So Biden was speaking at the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health today. And he was acknowledging a number of people in the audience, or people that he expected to be in the audience, including a congresswoman a Republican from Indiana who we talked about last month who died in a tragic car accident along with two staffers, Congresswoman Jackie Walorski of Indiana. And I guess Biden thought that she was going to be there. He had released a statement about her death last month, or at least his office did, under his name. I don't know if that slipped his mind or he didn't know about it in the first place or if they had her name still on the program for some reason. But this is what happened today, Cut 29. I want to thank all of you here for 
including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was was going to be here. So she was not going to be there for obvious reasons. And was her name on a list in front of him? Like, you don't really know how this type of mistake gets made, but that is a really bad one. And I'm sure that there's already been a private reach out to her family and an apology. Sometimes it's just Biden sort of stumbling or slurring over words or getting something confused or turning the wrong way or putting his hand out for a handshake and no one's there. Like, you know, you've seen all of those. This one stings probably for a family whose grief is still fresh. And my instinct is to put more blame for this on the staff than on him, unless he was really just freestyling and completely forgot that this congresswoman had passed away. My guess is this is the staff serving him poorly and then him shuffling into this absolutely cringeworthy, brutal mistake. So after that happened, at the press briefing, Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked about this, and if there's one thing that she can be counted on to do, it is to not make things better. And she didn't. Here was an exchange with a reporter, Cut 30. What happened in the hunger event today? The president appeared to look around the room uh, for an audience member, a member of Congress who passed away last month. He seemed to indicate she might be in the room. What, so, what happened there? so the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had, uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome the Congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, So, of course, she was on his mind. She was of top of mind uh, for the president. He uh, looks very much looks forward to discussing her remarkable legacy of public service with them when he sees her family this coming Friday. He said, Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? She must not be here. No, I totally understand. I just I just explained she was on top of mind. Oh. Bad, bad mop-up there, KJP. Made it worse. If the president just forgot that she had passed away and her name was mistakenly on a list, just own up to it and say it was a mistake and we've reached out. Instead, she reveals that there's a bill signing coming up this week in her honor that the president knows about. Her family's coming in. It's named after her, apparently, And they're doing this because she passed away, and this is something in her memory. And for that reason, she was top of mind. That would make sense if he was talking about her, not in the context, though, of looking for her in the crowd. Where is she? I thought she was going to be here. And Jean-Pierre just says, well, she was clearly on the top of his mind. Not in a way that bears resemblance to the actual facts, which are very sad in this case. I think she's trying to pretend that he was well aware that she passed away and was really looking forward to the bill signing in her honor on Friday. So she was top of mind, and this was him really just honoring and acknowledging her incredible work. That doesn't make any sense if you listen to what Biden actually said. Where is she looking for her? If there was a mistake or if he forgot, 
I think it would be a lot better to just admit it and apologize and move on as opposed to trying to come up with some story like this was intentional. And he did this and made this mistake because he was thinking so much about her. No. And if it weren't real life and it weren't affecting someone's family still in mourning, it would be funny. It would be, given the track record of this man and this press secretary. But because I think that pain is still fresh, it's really not funny. And they found a way to, I think, dig a little deeper, which seems to be one of the specialties of this administration. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Joe Concha out with a brand new book. We'll talk to him about that, plus news of the day next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's program, midway through the week on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, free every day on demand. With us now from our New York headquarters, Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, and author of a brand new book out this week called Come On, Man, The Truth About Joe Biden's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Presidency. And Joe, welcome back to the show. Gosh, should I have gone with a shorter title, you think? You think I nope. overdid it a little bit? Nope. It is a federal law that every conservative <laughs> book must have a quick, pithy title and then a very long subtitle, such as End of Discussion, How the Left's Outrage Industry Manipulates Voters, Shuts Down Debate, and Makes America Less Free and Fun, just to pick one Wow. That was seven years ago, wasn't at it? Random. It was. I think it was actually the, uh, the federal law is named after Ann Coulter. As ah. a matter of fact, she she sort of set the template. And now you've done this with come on, man. Tell us about the book, the elevator pitch of this tome that you've put out. The elevator pitch. So I got about 30 seconds here to wrap up why you should buy this book. And I think overall it's a cautionary tale on why we living in the greatest country in the world should never, ever settle on a leader. In other words, we had a media in 2020 that was so hell-bent on getting Donald Trump out of office that they didn't bother to even remotely look at the guy who may replace him. And now we see where we are in terms of inflation, in terms of crime, in terms of the border, in terms of education, and in terms of a president that even his own party, voters in his own party, do not want him to seek a second term. So why are we here Why are we settling for somebody who's been below average his entire life and everything he has done? It's because primarily of a media that has gone from journalism to activism, as we lay out in the book. Is the book, Come On Man, more about Biden and his record and his failures or the media propping him up to get him elected and then the consequences of that? Or is it sort of a heavy dose of both heavy dose of both and but but they're constantly being tied back together so i I talk about the media for example pushing this man way over the finish line on their own and and i give specific examples that when i go back and research them i couldn't believe that this actually happened and and we in traditional media like people that are actually objective allowed it it to happen without screaming from the rooftops for example 
during one town hall. Remember, they have those town halls leading up to the election. So ABC News. And when you think about bias, right, you always hear about CNN and MSNBC and The New York Times and The Washington Post. But ABC is once in a while you'll hear about them. But for the most part, you would think at least their news division would handle a town hall fairly. Well, sure enough, one guy gets up and asks this T-ball question of Biden. And then afterwards, it's revealed that the person who asked the question was a speechwriter in the Obama-Biden administration. Mm. You know, and it, that could have been vetted in about eight seconds on Google. And then CNN, who I mentioned, they do a town hall and they have independent voters that want answers from Joe Biden. Okay, great. Who asked the questions? Well, nine questions were asked and seven were asked by Democrats, two by Republicans, and one of those Republicans hated Trump. So basically, again, it was all just a fixed fight from the media's perspective, but more importantly, Guy, not just traditional media, but social media. We know what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop. We know that Twitter and Facebook suppressed and censored stories, locked people out of their accounts like we're living in Pyongyang. You know, Kaylee McEnany couldn't access her Twitter account a couple weeks before an election because she shared a story about Hunter Biden's laptop from the New York Post, which is the oldest daily newspaper in the country and I think has a good reputation. So again, this happened in this country before an election where the media is supposed to speak, you know, hold the powerful accountable without fear or favor to party. And social media is just supposed to be an open platform of ideas. And both of them worked hand in hand along with former intelligence officials like John Brennan, MSNBC and James Clapper, CNN, and down the line, all these intelligence officials who since have gone into the television, you think they're Keith Oberman, you can't tell the difference. And, And all of them worked together to make sure that one man was elected without looking at the man himself and saying, is this the right guy? for the job joe concha's book is come on man it's out now i want to get your comment joe this is also a media related question since we often talk about those issues with you oh yeah it was inevitable that with a very i think devastating and likely unfortunately deadly storm hitting florida there was no chance none that the media was going to be able to help itself but to go after the leader of the state of Florida because they hate him very much and they have used every occasion to attack him, often ridiculously. And it really hasn't taken very long for the politicizing of this hurricane to begin, even before they started coming after DeSantis, for example. Senator Amy Klobuchar was giving an interview, and she was talking about the stakes of the midterms. The midterm is coming up in a few weeks, and she was able to shoehorn the hurricane into that pitch in cut 20. If the Republicans take charge, a number of them have been talking about an abortion ban. You guys know that. You featured on the show. That's why we've got to win this midterm. We just did something about climate change for the first time in decades. That's why we've got to win this as that hurricane bears down on Florida. We've got to win in the midterms. Yeah, Democrats need to win in the midterms to be able to change the weather. And relatedly on CNN last night, Don Lemon had an expert on the show who is a top meteorological authority. And Lemon tried to turn this into a climate change discussion about what's happening down in Florida. It didn't go great for the host. Cut 18. (laughs) Can you tell us what this is and what effect climate change has on this phenomenon? Well, we can come back and talk about climate change uh, at a later time. I want to focus on the here and now. We think the rapid intensification is probably almost... He pivots away to the actual story here which is what's happening in this storm, not climate change. But Lemon wasn't ready to let that go just yet, and it continued in Cut 19. Uh, Listen, I'm just trying to get that you said you want to talk about climate change, but what what effect does climate change have on this phenomenon that, that is happening now? Because it seems these storms are intensifying. That's the question. I don't think you can link climate change to any one event. 
on the whole, on the cumulative, uh, climate change uh, may be making storms worse, uh, but uh, to link it to any one event, um, I, I would caution against that. Okay. Well, they, listen, I grew up there, and these storms are intensifying. Something is causing them to int intensify. All right. So the guest says, Joe, that maybe, <laughs> maybe in the cumulative effect, Climate change might be having an effect, but to link it to any one event like this, he would caution against it. But, hey, Don Lemon lived in Florida, Joe, so he feels like things are intensifying QED, I guess. In the book, we talk about uh, Don Lemon about eight years ago, right? And, and one of the chapters is on the death of CNN. And Don Lemon, when Jeff Zucker first came on board, after that Malaysian airline went missing, actually asked an expert, just like the one you were talking about, about the possibility that the plane was sucked up by a black hole. And the expert said even a small black hole near this planet or solar system would engulf the entire solar system. In other words, just put him completely back in his place. So uh, uh, the was fact that, that was that Lemon, that was Lemon and uh. Lemon. You know, so for him to serve as the expert on black holes and hurricanes, take two seats in, in, in this manner. Look, you're exactly right about they're trying to turn this into DeSantis's Katrina, except that Ron DeSantis has has been well out in front of this. And by the way, I find it hilarious that during Katrina, the Democratic governor of Louisiana got zero blame and George W. Bush got all the blame, even though that governor at well, the time. The, the governor yeah. and the mayor, right? The two mayor. Democrats, they were just sort of, uh, yeah, right. And, and he was talking about how he wanted a chocolate city and it was this weird racial stuff. But it was all George W. Bush. And then, interestingly, it seems like the focus often seems to turn, coincidentally, no matter what, to the closest person who's an elected official with an R next to his or her name. It's, it's very subtle. Right. And, and Biden won't get any blame here, just like Bush shouldn't have got much of the blame uh, during that particular response, because, again, only a governor could call up the National Guard, for example. Right. But now, trust me, the tables will turn and this will be all on DeSantis, this historic, catastrophic hurricane where people's lives are at stake. And, and we're seeing this thing weaponized as as it's making landfall, I mean, it hasn't even cleared Florida yet. And I'll give you this from Politico. DeSantis still hasn't faced one of the toughest challenges a Florida leader can encounter, a major hurricane, except he did in 2020 with Hurricane Sally. So they're even saying that he hasn't faced a hurricane yet when a five-second Google search will show you that. And there is a chapter on DeSantis as well and how he's a real threat to the Democrats in 2024, regardless well, if Trump runs or not. So you get a lot in this book. That I will say, Guy. Yeah, and, you know, this is a huge hurricane. This one in particular, Massive. Ian, seems uh, really scary. But if the storyline is that it's because climate change is intensifying, I mean, Hurricane Andrew is a Cat 5 storm, famously massively destructive. That was 30 years ago. Yeah. So I wonder, who was there a Republican governor at the time? Because it was probably that person's fault. <laughs> right. You know, back in, uh, back in 19, what was it, 1992. Dude, that's right. Well, Joe, I, I think you're obviously – on your book tour, you're out there selling this book. I think I heard your alarm going off. You've got another hit to go do <laughs> to promote your book. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist, his new book out now. Come on, man. Available everywhere. Joe, appreciate it. My next book will be Come On, Guy. Let me guest <laughs> host for you again. I love it too much. Take a day off once in a while, man. I'll be there. But thanks for having me. I appreciate well, it. I'm not sure that one would be a bestseller. But my <laughs> best of luck to you regardless. Joe Concha here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. So I saw this story on social media, and the audio is just fantastic. It comes from a talk show in Australia where the host of the show 
Heather Duplessis Allen, it's a long name, was interviewing a teenager, a high schooler, named Izzy Cook. And Izzy Cook is sort of like the Greta Thunberg down under. Right? So this is a climate activist who organizes these climate strikes and wants to radically reshape policy due to climate change and is very, very active. She's an activist, is Izzy Cook, in her teens. So Izzy Cook, who's out there agitating and demanding all these changes that would really impact people's lives in very serious ways, uh, she gave an interview on the air, and, well, the host had a few questions about what's permissible under the new climate regime that teenagers like Izzy Cook are pushing. Is she still allowed to fly and go on vacation? What exactly are the limits of this? And things sort of proceeded from there. Just amazing. Cut 21. Am I allowed to go to Fiji? Is that necessary? In the current climate crisis, I don't think that that's necessary. When was the last time you were on a plane? Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe a few months ago, to be honest. Where'd you go? Fiji. Izzy! (laughs) Izzy! Don't you care about the climate, Izzy? Of course I care about the climate. Not enough. You went to... <laughs> you went to Fiji. <laughs> Izzy, come on, mate. Are you, are you serious? So... <laughs> the host asks the question, can I go to Fiji on vacation? And Izzy says, no, it's not necessary. And literally seconds later, Izzy has to admit that she herself went to Fiji on vacation a few months ago to that exact spot. And obviously this host is just like blown away and is laughing uncontrollably because it is admittedly quite funny. The exchange went on in Cut 22. Are you serious, Izzy? It is pretty ironic, but to be honest, it's not really a trip that I wanted to go on, but I can't really get out of it. Why'd you go? go. Why'd you go? My parents wanted to go. Izzy, I want to go. How are you, are you embarrassed that your parents did that to the planet and then forced you to do it as well? Of course, I'm not embarrassed. Did you did have you a terrible time? The, not really. I didn't. Have <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, mate. Listen, you're such a champion. I think you've got a brilliant future ahead of you. And and I, are you doing another strike soon? Yeah, well, we'll look to. I will, I will talk to you again and I'll get you back on the show. I mean, it's funny. People shouldn't be going to Fiji. It's not necessary. Oh, have you been on a plane recently? Yeah. Where'd you go, Fiji? Well, why'd you do that? The planet. The planet, Izzy. This is where my parents wanted to go. Oh, I see. Well, did you have a bad time? No. <laughs> so apparently Izzy's mother is outraged. Furious that her child was bullied this way. Uh, No. I understand this is a teenager, not to be treated the same way as an adult who's in the fray, but this is a teenager who is organizing climate strikes that impact people, advocating huge radical changes that will impact everyone in the country if she were to get her way. She has thrust herself very aggressively into the debate down there on this stuff. And agrees to do an interview in which, hilariously, she is revealed to be a hypocrite. And then the mother, who I'm sure was thrilled about all the activism and what her daughter was up to. Oh, she's on the radio. She's doing all this stuff. And then 
it kind of looks bad for her, and now all of a sudden it's bullying. <laughs> I'm, I find that clip absolutely priceless. Now, was I once a 16-year-old with ideals and ambitions and ideas about the world? Yes. Was I out there fighting for what I believed in? Yes. Was I maybe more of a cartoon character of a conservative at that time than I am now? Yes. Would I look back and maybe say, uh, maybe back it off a little? Sure. But I also don't think that we should steal that kind of idealism or activism from teenagers or kids. I think that's fine. I think it's sort of a healthy thing, and then people live, they learn, hopefully they hear from other people and gather other perspectives and maybe change their calculus on a few things based on new information and life experience. I don't think we should mock or crush that. I do think when you have inserted yourself into a national discussion in a serious way and then you get exposed this way, it's funny, it's not bullying. I think that there's a happy medium here where we can encourage engagement among young people, but also not just venerate or listen to teenagers as like the brilliant future or whatever. We were all kind of stupid one way or another when we were young. So like maybe the German government shouldn't have outsourced its energy policy to a teenager from Scandinavia. That is not going well for them right now. And in fact, could be really catastrophic this winter based on Greta's guidance. Right, I think about the walkouts that are being covered so excitedly in the news media in Virginia against Glenn Youngkin. We had Youngkin on the show last week. One of my questions was about this shift in transgender-related policy in Virginia public schools, which was, to my ear, a completely reasonable recalibration to make sure that parents are involved and informed about their own kids on this stuff. But, of course, it's now being, just like Don't Say Gay in Florida, it's being hyped up, and a bunch of people are getting all worked up, and teenage high school students see an opportunity to miss class and go have meaning and go out there and walk out of class and stand for something and whatever. And I think some of that comes from a good place. I think some of that comes from ignorance or silliness or lack of understanding or perspective and not really concerning what parents actually believe and what their rights are and probably what a lot of students also believe, the ones not walking out. But the media loves this stuff. Look at these young people, our progressive future, who agree with us standing up to this evil, rotten Republican governor in Virginia who's done something utterly uncontroversial, I would say. Or at least it shouldn't be. And I would guess if you polled on this type of thing, it would be lopsided in Yunkin's favor. Does that mean that the kids can't have their own views or opinions or decide that they're big mad about something? No, they can do that. I'm not sure they should be able to miss school because of it. But they are entitled to their beliefs. We also as adults should be entitled not to listen to them and not take them overly seriously. And I feel like... The interview that we just heard in Australia was an example of an adult not taking a child terribly seriously for reasons that are admittedly quite funny. That's all I'm saying. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Josh Krasauer will be here. You don't want to miss it. Straight ahead. How dare you? This is- 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour, Wednesday edition, here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, 5 to 6 Eastern is this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific. Very refreshing. It's autumnal, even. It's really a year-round beverage. If you're 21-plus only, of course, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com for all the places that they're sold, really still expanding. It's amazing their success. Or you can order online, thelongdrink.com. Our website here at the show, guybensonshow.com. Lots of goodies, including the podcast, every day on demand for free. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, on Twitter and on Instagram. And with that, let's bring in Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Really our weekly check-in with Josh as we get closer and closer to the midterm elections, less than six weeks out. Josh, welcome back. Hey, Guy. Well. Great to be back on the show. So I wanted to start with this just big picture. I noticed that earlier today, for the first time in weeks, the Republicans have now retaken the lead on the generic congressional ballot. It's, you know, by a fraction of a percentage point. I don't want to read too deeply into that. But that number also includes sort of an outlier that has the Democrats up four or five. Some of the other polling that has been less hospitable to Republicans recently, it looks like they're making a comeback there. There's a lot of discussion around the Washington Post ABC poll that came out on Sunday. And overall, though, last time you were here last week, we had a conversation about the vibes and another vibe shift away from the Democrats having built some momentum over the summer. And it seems like at least a little bit, maybe some of the national data is reflecting that change that you and I were talking about a week ago. Your big picture thoughts now. Yeah, well, that's the lag. That is the lag that the public polling has caught up with, that we're now seeing Republicans and Democrats pretty much tied on, on the generic ballot. And look, it's not, that's not the only measure that matters for the midterms. But historically, when Republicans are tied with Democrats, it usually is at least a pretty good night for, for the Republican Party. Usually there's a little bit of a, a baked-in advantage for the Democrats, since a lot of their votes are out on the coasts or in safe blue districts. And a lot of the swing seats and that ABC Washington Post poll you're talking about, Guy, showed Republicans with a 20-plus point lead among uh, voters with the most independent swing district voters. Uh, so that, that is a, a, a little bit of intel, a little bit of, uh, of a tea leaf there that shows that things are pretty good for, for Republicans like we discussed last week. You know, I think, I think the big picture is also reflective of the economy, where we had a summer where gas prices did go down, dropped about a dollar uh, since the peak from May and June. But now we have new anxieties over a possible global recession. You have new anxieties about the stock, uh, the Dow, dropping below 30,000 and, and looking like it may be dipping even further, if, if the experts are correct. A lot of people are losing money in their, their 401ks, and a lot of those sw- swing persuadable voters are pocketbook voters first and foremost. So the, 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 the fundamentals have always favored Republicans, and some of the most recent signals, some of the most recent developments have not been good news for the for the country, for the, for the White House, and it benefits the, the party out of power right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I want to come back to the gas prices issue and the inflation issue, but I think another 
little tidbit, a little nugget along this same path is something that you've been noticing on social media. I've seen a, a few stories about it. One was in the New York Times, for example. Just what Americans are Googling, what they're searching for, what they're searching about online. And for a while, especially over the summer, there were a lot of searches on abortion and that issue. And I've made a case separately that I think Republicans overall are mishandling the issue. There is an advantage to be had. I think that they're disengaging from the battle in a way that's foolish, not all of them, but uh, sort of across the board. Whatever you think of that, in the last couple weeks, that issue has now fallen down the death chart. And there are more searches on crime, on immigration, on the economy. I saw there was a national poll out today that showed education had now surpassed abortion as well. So if the conventional wisdom on that particular issue is correct, and I have sort of nuanced thinking on that, certainly if you're the Republicans and you see the top Google searches reflecting the top issues and on some of these polling data sets, Republicans have double-digit leads, for example, on economy, inflation, crime, immigration, uh, that is good news for them. Quality of life issues, Guy. These are issues that are as salient as the economy in some of these big battleground states, especially Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. We're seeing a little bit of the crime messaging in, in Georgia as well. And th- those are issues that, ha- if you look at the polls, that's where Republicans hold the biggest advantage, 20-plus points, on the issue of crime. And that's why you hear Democrats now responding in almost every, every race that they want to fund the police after the left wing of their party spent much of 2020 arguing the opposite. So these are, I always like to separate the cult, what's called the culture war issues that sometimes don't affect voters on a day-to-day basis with those very quality of life issues. And if you live in, if you live on the border, if you're in Arizona, if you're in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, immigration is, is a top issue. Border security is at the, the very top of your list. And if you're in a, in a state or a district where you have a nearby city or metropolitan area that's awash in crime and violence and homelessness, I mean, that, that, that's an issue that's even helping Republicans in governor's races become competitive in a state like Oregon or a state like New Mexico. So, yeah, I mean, these, these, this is the issue. Democrats have, have, as you noted, got some energy on the abortion issue, and, and that, that, that will continue to motivate their base. That is now a top issue for this midterm election. But there are also a lot of issues that not just motivate the base for Republicans, but also are persuadable to swing voters as well. And Republicans yep. are running ads on crime and immigration nonstop in a lot of these big races. Yeah, and on the crime point, this is something that we addressed on a special report last night, and we talked about it here on the show as well. You have Peter Ducey, colleague here at Fox News, asking just the slam-dunk question of Corinne Jean-Pierre. Does she agree with, effectively, the statements from Jen Psaki, her predecessor, on Meet the Press on Sunday, where Psaki went out of her way to talk about what a vulnerability crime is for the Democratic Party right now? She name-checked the Senate race in Pennsylvania in particular, and Jean-Pierre's really only effort at answering that was to pretend that Peter Ducey was mischaracterizing what Saki said, which he absolutely was not. I think that's maybe another signal here that the White House and the Democrats, they understand this is a problem for them, and they don't really have great answers beyond some of the talking points that I have found very unpersuasive that they've been trying to use here for the last year or so, running away from sort of that moment, that zeitgeist in 2020, that summer, where the Democrats really, I think, overcorrected in one direction. Now they want to make it seem like that never happened. And they're left with somewhat shambolic talking points and real potential 
political issues in some of these races where the candidates that the Democrats have nominated open themselves up uniquely on those issues to criticisms and attacks. Yeah, so the crime issue is one that really is one that you see as a Democratic vulnerability when you're in the bubble. And, and even Jen Psaki, who I think is super, super savvy politically, and her analysis was pretty, pretty, pretty good on Meet the Press. But she, even she, when she was doing a liberal podcast during her time as press secretary, made a dismissive comment about the, the, the fact that crime is only a Fox News issue. It, it's not. It's yep. an issue to anyone who lives near a big city that has seen violent crime spike in, in most of these major metropolitan areas. So it, it is a big political issue, and Jen understands that now. Uh, the problem is when you're in this bubble – you know, to, to Biden's credit, I think the Democratic argument, the most effective comeback is that we actually want to fund the police. They'll try to find some some police uh, officials testify to the, the anti-crime bona fides of some of these candidates. But you also have some candidates like in Wisconsin with you know Mandela Barnes or you have John Fetterman in Pennsylvania who have records that are a little bit tough to, to unravel. And it's a big vulnerability you're seeing in a handful of races where you do have Democrats who are, who are on the record in 2020, 2021, talking about how they wanted to move money from the police budgets to other other government services. And that's a big, big vulnerability at this time. Yep. And Biden himself in an interview said that he'd be willing to do that. Kamala Harris, and I've said this before, I just like reminding people, she was urging on social media her supporters to go and donate money to a bail fund in Minneapolis that was letting not only rioters out of jail, but it turns out other violent criminals as well. They are trying to sort of airbrush all of that away and pretend that they're the party of funding the police. I understand why they're making that pivot, but so long as they have people in their coalition, in their party, major state, major race nominees who were even further on the extreme of that issue, I think it becomes more difficult for them to go there. Meanwhile, on gas prices, I know that a lot of attention was paid to abortion and people sort of said, okay, well, the Dobbs decision came out and then things changed and now that issue might be fading a little bit and so things are getting better for the Republicans and and worse again for President Biden and his party. There might be some truth to that. I would also point out that we didn't really see that big change after the Dobbs decision leaked and a lot of people just assumed it was going to happen. I would just argue, Josh, that at least as significant, if you want to track the numbers, would be gas prices. When gas prices peaked, it was bad, bad news for the Democrats. Then as the gas prices came down, things started to look better in terms of the president's job approval rating. The generic ballot was moving. I think there were maybe different issues, a confluence that helped the Democrats make something or stage something of a comeback. We are now on day eight, eight consecutive days of gas prices coming up. President Biden earlier making statements about the hurricane down in Florida warning oil companies not to gouge Americans by raising prices, using the hurricane as an excuse or whatever. I just feel like we're starting to, again, hear the talking points that the White House was leaning on, corporate greed, Putin, when the prices were bad. They're starting to creep back into the lexicon, into the arguments over at the White House, which suggests to me that they're looking at these numbers as well and getting politically nervous about what they could mean, and the scapegoating is starting again. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, live by the gas prices and you die by the gas prices. And to be fair to the White House and, frankly, to be fair to anyone who's in office during a time of you know, when, when energy, you have energy shortages, you know, things that are out of any White House's control, they'll get blamed or, or credited. But it's really not centrally uh, involved. The White House can't wave a magic wand and make, make prices go down or change policies that will dramatically affect that trajectory. But, look, you're right, Guy, that, that, that is what these swing voters are paying 
a whole lot of attention to. Well, well the base is Democrats are looking at abortion. Republicans now focused on, on border security, immigration. It's the swing voters that are deciding on the economy. That they're, 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 they're voting on the pocketbook issues. And if gas prices go up another dollar in the next month, that would be a worst-case political scenario for, for this White House. Yeah, whether it's a dollar or just you know the wrong direction. Because they've been applauding the right direction and sort of claiming credit for that, even though they took no blame when it was going the opposite way. I mean, this is part of what politicians do. And the other talking points disappeared. Now it's like, oh, look at this. Now, obviously... The number that we're at now nationally is well above where it was when Biden took office. People are paying a lot more for gas than they were in January of 2021. But compared to July or whatever it was, June and July, it's better, but starting to get worse again here. And so I think that's something that certainly is setting off more alarm bells over at Democrat headquarters, over at the White House. And the way that they might try to grapple with that rhetorically, uh, has been interesting to watch and will be interesting to watch. I have seen the president. We've commented on this now a couple days this week. He's out there saying just factually wrong things about gas prices, saying that the average price is now below $3 in one day. He said in 41 states plus D.C., then he changed it to in some states it's below $3. The truth is in zero states is it below $3. I don't know why he's saying that or where he's getting that information, but it's not going to fool people who are paying what they are paying. And we'll definitely be watching that space for sure because I think it is sort of this shorthand that a lot of voters use sometimes. And time is running short on the Democrats with less than six weeks left. Quickly, Josh, I want to ask you about one state in particular, Arizona. Kind of an interesting scenario out there. We had Blake Masters on the show last week. He told me that he believes he's down between one and four points. He thinks he's in striking distance. The polling has shown him trailing and also underperforming Carrie Lake, who's the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans, who now has taken a lead in the polling average and has been leading in the last couple polls that I've seen. She's sort of seen as, you know, more controversial or radical or, you know, conspiratorial on the 2020 election. That was a huge basis for her primary election push. In the general, it does kind of seem like she's shifted a little bit. She is modulated to a general election tone. I saw her first ad, big you know, statewide ad that they put out. It was actually, I thought, pretty good. Her biography, talking directly to the camera. You know, If I didn't know some of the things that she'd said and talked about, she would seem like a pretty attractive candidate. And on a lot of the issues, I, I do tend to agree with this current iteration of Carrie Lake. She does present very well. She's articulate. She's smooth. And it's just interesting because some people were wondering, would she drag down Blake Masters? Now it seems like maybe the dynamic has reversed a little bit where she could potentially win. And if Masters has a chance, he needs her to do even better. What's your take right now on Arizona? Yeah, I think your analysis is is pretty spot on. I I, I am more bearish on Blake Masters' chances, if only because the biggest super PAC that spends money for Republicans in these Senate races withdrew nine-plus million dollars for Blake Masters, which is something of a vote of no confidence in his chances of winning, whatever his polls say. Now, we've seen upsets before. We've seen polling be off, but there has been enough public polling. I've heard enough internal data that – and then even if even Masters is saying he's, that usually candidates like to say they're within striking distance or winning, uh, the spin, spin the thing in the most favorable direction, he's even saying he's losing in, in the race. So, you know, I, I think he, he's, he's a long shot, and he's sort of dug his own political grave because he made so many controversial comments, uh, even beyond Lake. If you, if you listen to what Master said on the, on the campaign trail, if Dorsey or 
praising the Unabomber and making calling for really, really restrictive abortion laws. He really made some mistakes that a more experienced candidate wouldn't be doing, even in a, in a primary. Lake has a good chance of winning the governor's race. Now, Arizona is a, still has a lot of Republican DNA um, in, in the state. It, it voted for Biden narrowly in 2020, but it, it still wants to vote Republican. When Kirsten Sinema won that Senate seat in 2018, the Republicans won the, the governorship. Governor Ducey won the governorship by, I think, about 15, 20 points. So this is a state that has a built-in Republican advantage, I would say, especially at that statewide level. Doug Ducey is now endorsing Carrie Lake. She's tied in most of these public polls, neck and neck with, with a Democrat. So that's going to be a race that goes down to the wire. It, 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 I don't think uh, Lake has necessarily an advantage, but it's a race she can win if she moderates her message and, and is able to energize the same voters that propelled her in the primary. Josh Crossauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst here on The Guy Benson Show. Josh, we'll talk again next week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. And The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show happy hour, just talking to Josh Crossauer in the last segment. I mentioned that I was on special report last night. After the panel was over, Brett did his Tuesday tweet segment. And the last question that he took from a viewer, well, it was an interesting one. Here's how it sounded as he answered the question from a Twitter user and then handed the show off to Jesse Waters primetime. And Jesse, fun little banter, cut 27. Who's your favorite panelist? Wow, that's tough. I'm going to say Charles Krauthammer. That's it for us. Fair, balanced, and unafraid. Thanks for watching. Jesse Waters Primetime starts right now. Who's your favorite panelist? Jesse? I mean, Guy Benson, no question. <laughs> <laughs> Playing to the crowd. That's right. <laughs> little fist bump from Brett after that one. And I just have to say for the record, his answer was undoubtedly 100% correct. Dr. Krauthammer is the greatest of all time on that panel. But thanks anyway, Jesse. I do appreciate it. They did burst into laughter, by the way. When he said my name. Is it that funny? No, it was a good-natured moment. I appreciate it. Well, break. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. And we are back here on The Guy Benson Show. It's our happy hour. In our first hour today, Sandra Smith, our colleague, was here, co-anchor of America Reports. She and John Roberts every weekday. She also spent years covering business, the markets. That was the focus of our conversation earlier. Here's part of it. I want to ask you about something that I saw tweeted by both our colleague Dagan McDowell and also Larry Summers noticing the same trends. Dagan tweeting earlier this morning, the yield on the 10-year Treasury hits 4% for the first time in more than a decade, climbing at the fastest pace in 40 years, mortgage rates headed to 7% plus. What is your analysis of the significance of these developments happening? Well, there's the expectation for fewer home sales, eventually prices to come down. I mean, you're talking about median home prices hitting $384,000 in this country. I mean, they were at elevated levels as we saw a booming uh, stock market and you saw those record low interest rates, easy money environment that existed for quite some time. And you had a serious elevation in the price of uh, of home sales in this country that can quickly come to an end when you've got now the 30 year mortgage 
hitting uh, mortgage rate hitting 6.5%. Depends on where you look, but it's right around there. And, I mean, it has gone up significantly in a short period of time. That causes a major disruption in the U.S. housing market and makes people nervous. And I think you're seeing that play out in the overall stock market, the commodities market, the bond market. There's a lot of nervous investors out there. And if you were in that group that bought a home in the last couple of years with interest rates low where they were, that easy money environment, and you now own that home, you're a little worried. You're, you're worried about the value of your home. Uh, if you're in an adjustable rate mortgage, you're worried about your mortgage pay, payments ballooning. Uh, those are all real concerns of, of real people, and I think that's why you're seeing such a nervous marketplace right now. And yet, today the Dow is way up. Right now it's up over 600 points at the moment. Uh, and I wonder what you think is driving that. It's been really rough sledding on Wall Street for more than a week, some big drops. Today looks like a bright spot, at least so far. Why? Well, you know, I called a few of my friends on Wall Street just to figure out what that was all about. I mean, you, sometimes you just get relief from heavy selling. That can certainly be the case. Uh, but you've also got those technical uh, Wall Street traders that watch the charts and they say technically this looks like some of them are saying technically this can look like an oversold market therefore a buying opportunity so you get some of those buyers that step in at these lower stock prices and start buying uh so there's a there's a few different scenarios that can be playing out but you're still looking at what has been a big drop in the stock market um, into bear market territory which means it's off 20 percent from recent highs yep and it's still below thirty thousand. In this bear market territory, what we saw yesterday and the day before from the White House was, you know, some tweets and some chest thumping about a slightly improved consumer confidence number that had ticked up just a little bit. And I saw some of the White House's critics saying, I mean, that is really small potatoes to be hanging your hat on. I think I just mixed a metaphor there, but that that's not necessarily something to be crowing all that much about, especially when there seem to be some pretty bright, flashing signs about danger and worry in broad sectors of the economy. I know we had a big debate, Sandra, and you were here on the show when we were talking about this, about whether back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth, you know, contraction, really was a recession or was it just technically a recession? Was that definition appropriate to be applied here? It sounds like even some of the doubters there are starting to get worried about that R word in a more serious way moving forward. What's your overall sense of that question and that scenario? Well, for uh, for most of us who have watched markets for quite some time and were studies of, of economic history, we know that most economists define recession by two straight quarters of, of, of contraction in the economy or, or negative GDP growth. And that is what we have experienced. So there are many who are already in the camp that we are living and working in a recession right now. Uh, you know, if people want to open that up to other economic indicators, they certainly can. Many are attributing the rise to a five-month high of consumer confidence to the recent drop in gas prices. Because, guy, end of day, you know, it's about your grocery bill. It's about your gas prices. Um, it's about those pocketbook issues for the American voters as we work our way to midterm elections. And inflation has been it's been rough for the average American family that's shelling out almost 500 extra dollars a month right now for inflation. It hurts. And if you get a little bit of relief, which we have, we've had um, we've had uh, straight weeks of uh, drops in the average price of gasoline um, that that could change. I mean, we've got we've got um, what could be 
an interruption in gasoline and oil supply because of this hurricane, although it's not directly in the path of the major refineries on the Gulf Coast. But still, there could be some localized um, disruption there. It won't affect the global market. But gas prices are still high. They are still high. Food prices are still high. Inflation is still real. That has not changed. Uh, what has changed is we've had to raise interest rates to tame inflation. And that is, it takes us back to our original point that, that the housing market could seriously be disrupted here. My full discussion with Sandra Smith, Fox News colleague on the economy and more, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every single day on demand right there at your fingertips. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, well, we left you with one of the least dramatic and exciting cliffhangers in the history of cliffhangers yesterday. With producer Christine and the school festival and that whole thing, uh, there's apparently a development that we need to get to rather urgently, and we will do so after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the week. Almost completely through today's show, but not quite. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website, podcast always free. Yesterday in this segment, producer Christine was complaining that her husband Bobby had signed her up, unbeknownst to her, for six hours of work at the school carnival this weekend for her daughter. The option is you pay hundreds of dollars in a check at the beginning of the year, then you don't have to volunteer, or you volunteer in lieu of the money. And they've been writing the check. I guess that party was over, and Bobby decided they were going to do some work, and so he signed both of them up to do different tasks. He was going to do security at the carnival. Christine was going to work in the food court. She was not excited about this, and I thought that she might just make another executive decision over his head and write the check anyway. But then she got excited. Literally during the segment, she thought of the idea of wearing her beloved costume costume, of wearing her beloved hot dog costume that she's mentioned way too many times to actually be embarrassed about it. She would wear it to the food court and be sort of like, you know, not only a worker and a volunteer, but the court jester, which is also one of her roles here at the show. Didn't we also, Christine, have some idea? You're going to be like the chief morale officer or chief happiness officer that was another discussion that we had at one point yes because uh, a lot of companies were starting right. this program where right. they would hire a chief happiness officer and yes yeah, so you're going to be would... coming in yeah sort of haranguing everyone all the time about being happy and putting on costumes and dancing around and that sort of thing oh, no 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 you you said that part i did i never said costumes no i seem to recall that you were going to uh, agree to that but it regardless didn't really pan out i guess they weren't willing to give you the raise uh, for whatever that role would have entailed so instead you were like here's a chance to break out a costume and you seem to have a renewed sense of excitement about or maybe a first sense of excitement about doing this volunteer work because it was another excuse for you to wear this hot dog costume that you secretly love so much so i told everyone to stay tuned what was going to happen? Uh, I almost forgot about this because it's not really the most compelling thing we've ever done here. But during the meeting today, our planning call, you said there was a major development on this front. And now I need to know what it is. 
think I said it was major, but it was something that bothered me when we ended the show last night. I called my mom because, don't forget, we moved to an apartment back How in. How could I forget? Right, right. And my mother has a lot of our decor because we couldn't fit it all, you know, in our home. And she has boxes of costumes and clothing and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. So I called my mom and I said, Mom, can you look in the costume box and see if the hot dog costume's there because I need you to bring it up for me? And she said, yeah, okay, hold on. And she was looking through everything and she said, "There, there's, I don't see a costume box here. And I know I didn't have it in the apartment and um, my husband came home last night after hearing Homestretch, which he did not appreciate, and then told me that um, he threw out my hot dog costume. <gasps> yeah, I know. He he threw away the hot dog costume mm-hmm. during the move without your knowledge? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a great move. Great opportunity. To ditch the thing, were you furious? I was so upset. I said, why would you throw away a hot dog costume? It's evergreen. I could understand throwing away some of Megan's princess costumes or, you know, stuff from the past that she's not going to use again. But I would assume a hot dog costume is something that you could use over and over again for different purposes. Maybe he just felt like he'd seen you in it so often that... It was time to retire it, and you would never agree to it, so he just took the opportunity. He saw that opening, and into the old dumpster it went. I just, like, I can't imagine. I would never do that to him. Like, if he had, like, a hamburger <laughs> costume or, I don't know, any, I don't know, whatever he wanted. I what, was, what was the hamburger character at McDonald's? The Hamburglar. No, there's the Hamburglar, but then there was an actual Hamburger 2. Was that Grimace or was Grimace a ridiculous giant like plush thing? I could have sworn it was like Mr. Burger. I, I don't know. Wyatt, look it up. I, unless I'm hallucinating this, I could have sworn there was a lower level McDonald's character of some sort. No, Grimace but, is supposed to apparently represent a taste bud. And it's like a big, giant felt thing, right? Oh, good news. His identity is fluid. Whose? Grimace. Based on based on what? Uh, based on <laughs> Business Insider from September 8th, 2021. Oh, well, I mean, now, now I will sleep tonight knowing that Grimace is not just one thing. He, he or she, they identify as fluid, and that's fine. As a McDonald's mascot, I don't even know what it's to a call taste it, bud. But... I'm telling you, they they well, identify. Excuse as Excuse me, bud. but I thought you said it's fluid. How the... can you tell Grimace what Grimace is? But when no, according the, to I... Business Insider, Grimace isn't really sure. Oh, true, because it says identity, not gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a taste bud, then maybe the energy changes. I don't know. I just wish you would be a little bit less offensive and bigoted toward Grimace. Well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very upset right now, okay? It's not a good uh, yeah, day you for are, me. Yes, that is true. You're traumatized by the loss of your trusty hot dog costume. Was there – this is now going to bother me. Was there a hamburger character? And they would have someone, like, dressed up like a hamburger – 
who would maybe get chased around by the Hamburglar. Who's a criminal, by oh, the way? I don't know. On. With our with our crime wave, do we need to glorify criminals like the Hamburglar? Mayor McCheese? That's and, it. Uh, Mayor McCheese. <laughs> Mayor McCheese, an elected official, apparently. That I had forgotten, that little element. I wonder if Mayor McCheese is a Republican or a Democrat. Or maybe just fluid. Maybe everyone's fluid. Ronald McDonald, you think that'd be, well, let's just, we are so far off the beaten path here and so far off our very important topic, which is you have lost your hot dog costume. Well, not really lost. It has been deliberately taken from you by your husband, which you have now discovered. And the one thing that you were now excited about for Saturday in the six-hour volunteer stint that he signed you up for. You're going to wear the hot dog costume. Now it's unavailable to you. It's gone. So are you back to grumpy about the whole situation? And are you considering not going, not paying your dues as a parent, not volunteering your time, but instead signing away a check to the school to let you off the hook for all this stuff? No, it's too late. I have to show up. I mean, listen, remember how bad I was at the class mom thing. I can't I do. I can't keep doing, you know, I have to I have to step up here. But I'm going to well, no, I, no, I th- I think the I think the solution is the opposite. I think you write the check because when you try to volunteer to do things, you sort of butcher them. So why run that risk? Why even try when there's an easy out? You know what? My therapist, Roy, says I have to have more confidence in my life. So I am confident that I can do a good job at the food court this Saturday. I'm going to put it out there. But I know one way that I could be super excited about going Saturday. And it involves someone else on our team. Oh, boy. Well, it's not me, is it? No, no. Okay, thank God. All right. So whatever the plan is, I'm intrigued. Go. I think. That the school should hire YY the Clown <laughs> to come on Saturday and do balloon animals. Balloons. Balloons. It's a carnival. Yes. I mean, where else would a clown be more welcome than a carnival? Balloon animals. He could make the balloon animals while also, like, reading out loud editorials from the Wall Street Journal, right, for the kids. It's like... A two-in-one. You get a little poodle made out of balloon, and you also learn about President Biden's failing policies on fill-in-the-blank. Why, why the clown? Would you consider this offer, and what would your rate be? Um, no, this isn't something I would never consider. It, why, why has been retired for for several years, and. <laughs> For, for YY to come out of retirement, I mean, it would have to be a very special occasion, and it, it would be, you know, top, top dollar. I'm talking into the six figures range for— Six for, figures? Yep, for that to happen. What about for Cookie's 50th, which I think is coming up pretty soon? Would you no, 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 consider no, no, no. <laughs> coming out of retirement for that event? With you Maybe know, with... for that. Maybe okay. for that. You See? guys, I'm 41. We've got a while. Well, you know, if you round up, I don't know. So I just I want to make sure that we keep that. And normally Wyatt's the one who keeps the binders full of our records. And he might lose that page, agreeing to be YY the Clown. But for something that important, I'm glad that we've established this on the air. We've got many witnesses who are listening right now. And if you're brand new to the show (laughs) and you haven't been listening for very long, 
you are absolutely baffled and lost. And I commend you if you're still listening, actually. If you're still here for this segment, being totally not in on these, they're not even inside jokes. They're just, they're origin stories. They're the background music of this show. Maybe you've learned a few things. And next time we go off in a preposterous way, you'll know a little bit more. This is how we grow together on the show. This is one of our more ridiculous ones, I will say. And there's a lot of competition, believe me. Stiff competition, but uh, we've, we've really outdone ourselves here on this Wednesday, the 28th of September, 2022. Why don't we just try to bring it back down to earth and have a normal show tomorrow, 29th, a Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then, same time and place. Have a great night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.